Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Radius. Uh, we love to talk about the Bible here. That's what we're going to do today, but we also love to talk about sports. All right. So we're going to talk about sports a little bit too. Uh, Chan Gailey. You might heard of Chan Gailey. A lot of you football guys have heard of him. He was the head coach of the Cowboys. He was the head coach of uh, the Buffalo Bills. He was the head coach of Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. So a really impressive resume of, as a head football coach. But in the early 80s, he was the head coach of Troy State, a little college in Alabama. And in the 80s, he had Troy State playing for the national championship. Big time. So he's on the way to practice during the week of the big game. And his secretary calls, yells out to him as he's walking out to the field. Hey, coach, there's somebody on the phone. And he's like, I got a national championship game this week. Don't bother me. Take a message. She said, coach, it's Sports Illustrated. He's like, I'm coming. (laughs) All right. So he turns around and he heads back. And as he's walking back to his office, he's thinking, Sports Illustrated wants to talk to me. I have put Troy State on the map. We're playing for a national championship and Sports Illustrated wants to do an article on us. Three pages isn't going to be enough. (laughs) Three pages isn't going to be enough to capture what I've done with this program, how I've brought them back. Because maybe they want me on the cover. As I'm walking back to my office, I'm thinking, do they want an action shot? (laughs) Do they want me to pose? And so he gets back to the phone and his head's spinning with all the possibilities. And he picks up the phone and they say, is this Coach Chan Gailey? Yes, it is. Well, this is Sports Illustrated. And I just wanted to let you know your subscription has run out. (laughs) We would like to know if you want to extend this. And so that day, Chan Gailey learned a lot about his pride. Everyone in this room deals with pride. Someone wants to stand up right now and say, I'm not proud. I don't deal with pride. And you're actually bragging about how humble you are. And so there's really no way around it. We all struggle with pride. We all struggle with thinking we're better than people, with thinking that we're more important than we really are, with thinking that we deserve things that we don't really deserve, with thinking that we're better than others. And the Bible has warning after warning after warning about our pride. The Bible says that pride leads to disgrace. It leads to conflict, that God will humble the proud, that God opposes the proud, that your pride actually makes God your opponent. Think about that. That pride comes before destruction and that this is the verse that really gets me. God hates pride. The God of the universe hates pride. So I don't know about you. But if my pride makes God my opponent, if God hates it, if my pride is going to lead me into conflict, disgrace, and destruction, I want to do everything I can to put my pride to the side. Everything I can. I want to do everything I can to humble myself so that God doesn't have to do the humbling for me. Over the last few weeks, we've been inserting ourselves into the book of Genesis and into the life of Joseph. We've watched his character be formed as he's overcome troubles and trials, and temptation, and adversity. And today we're going to watch his character shine and continue to be formed as he puts his pride to the side. So don't worry. If you haven't been here, if you you know nothing about Joseph, or if you've been here every week and you didn't even remember we were talking about Joseph, all right? We're going to catch each other up. We're going to jump in, and we're going to pick up Joseph's story. Genesis 41, if you have your Bibles. If you don't, don't worry. It'll be on the screen. Genesis 41, verse 1. Two full years later. Well, two years later from what? 
right? Two years later since what? What has happened in the last two years for us to pick up right here? And right now, right now, I want to do exactly what I did two weeks ago. I want to ask you, not really, don't do this. Take your shoes off, put them in Joseph's sandals. I want you to actually experience what Joseph's experiencing, to feel what he's feeling, to insert yourself into Joseph's life and through his life, through God's word, it actually is going to speak to you this morning. That's what God's word does. I want you to feel what he's feeling. It's been two full years. Two full years ago, Joseph is in prison. Why is he in prison? Well, I'm going to make a long story short. You ready? Here's the cliff notes. His brothers hated him and they sold him into slavery and he ends up in the foreign nation of Egypt. An important Egyptian guy named Potiphar buys Joseph as a slave, puts him in charge of the house. But then Potiphar's wife begins to look at Joseph lustfully. And so she Super Bowl Shakira's herself at him. She throws herself in him, trying to seduce him, trying to sleep with him. And when Joseph runs away, she falsely accuses him of rape and he gets thrown into prison. So we know, now we know why he's in prison. He's been falsely accused. He's sitting in prison. I think he's been there a while. And one day he gets some new cellmates. This is what we talked about last week. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt, possibly the most powerful man in the entire world, has his chief cupbearer and his chief baker thrown into prison with Joseph. So now Joseph's got some cellmates and there's some important guys. And so these guys have some dreams and with God's help, Joseph tells them exactly what the dreams mean. But he says, listen, guys, when you get out of here, please remember me. When you get out of prison and you go back to Pharaoh, please remember that I'm here and help me get out of here. So the cupbearer gets out and he goes back to Pharaoh and he totally forgets about Joseph. Now it's been two years. Two full years later, since these cellmates have left him in prison, Joseph's hoping to be remembered and rewarded. And instead he's framed and forgotten. He's in this dungeon of a prison two years later. And I want you to picture Joseph in prison two years later. That's 730 days. That's 17,000 hours in a prison, hoping the cupbearer is going to remember him and get him out of there. I want you to feel what he's feeling. He's wondering, will I ever get out of these prison? Will I ever get out of these prison walls again? But here's what Joseph doesn't know. While he's tossing and turning in his prison bed, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is tossing and turning in his palace bed because he's having some dreams. That's what we're going to pick up this morning. Two full years later of Joseph sitting in prison, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt and on the planet, dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. In his dream, he saw seven fat, healthy cows come out of the river and begin grazing in the marsh grass. Then he saw seven more cows come up behind them from the Nile River, but these were scrawny and thin. These cows stood beside the fat cows on the riverbank. Then the scrawny, thin cows ate the seven healthy, fat cows. At this point in the dream, Pharaoh woke up. Now, it's no surprise that Pharaoh wakes up. You ever had something that's bothering you at night and you can't sleep? This dream would have bothered Pharaoh. Pharaoh would have had God-like status. The Nile River would have been extremely important in the Egyptian religion. It was the absolute lifeblood of all of Egypt. It was the primary source for economic stability, for social stability. Everything they did was based off of the Nile River. And when the Nile flooded and when the banks flooded, everything was great. Everything was prosperous. Pharaoh would have been responsible for maintaining the irrigation of the Nile River. That's his job as this godlike man in Egypt. 
It's his responsibility to control the Nile and make sure things are growing and make sure people are healthy. And so when he has a dream about seven scrawny cows coming out of the Nile and eating seven fat ones on the bank of his Nile River, it would have woken, it would have woken him up. It would have awakened him. Verse five. But he, Pharaoh, fell asleep again, had a second dream. This time he saw seven heads of grain. The grain was another staple in Egypt. He saw seven heads of grain, plump and beautiful, growing on a single stalk. Then seven more heads of grain appeared, but these were shriveled and withered by the east wind. And these thin heads swallowed up the seven plump, well-formed heads. Then Pharaoh woke up again and realized it was a dream. So he's having all these dreams about Nile River and things seem like they're about to go bad. The next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed by the dream. So he called for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. And when Pharaoh told them his dreams, not one of them could tell him what they meant. So I need you to understand the culture a little bit, okay? We're going to get practical in just a minute, but it's no sense in getting practical if you don't understand what the story's doing, all right? So I'm setting up a story. Then we're going to, I'm going to tell you how it affects your Monday morning, all right? Here's what you need to know about the culture. Back then, dreams were very important. In fact, there was a school where you went, it was called the House of Life, where you learned to interpret dreams. And they had these dream books. And they would literally have all these codes in these dream books where these magicians and these dream interpreters would go to school and you open up the dream books and you look it up and you say, okay, skinny cow means this, fat cow means this. And so all these wise men, all these magicians are looking at these dream books and they have no clue. They can't tell Pharaoh what it means. It's above them. Verse eight. When Pharaoh told him his dreams, not one of them could tell him what they meant. Not one of these magicians, not one of these wise men in all of Egypt, they were educated They were fully capable men. They couldn't tell them. Verse nine. Finally, the king's chief cupbearer spoke up. Today, I have been reminded of my failure, he told Pharaoh. So this moron, after two years, is like, whoops, my bad. (laughs) I forgot. How do you forget that? How would you forget that? You come to me this morning and you had a dream last night. All right. And in your dream, you and your friend have some sort of tragedy. And I say, hey, in three days, you're going to survive this tragedy. You're going to live. But your friend's going to have his head cut off and he's going to be hung from a pole. And then three days later on Wednesday, that actually happens. And then you forget about me for two years. It makes no sense, right? And this cupbearer is like, whoops. Today, I remember my failure. Verse 10, some time ago, you, Pharaoh, you were angry with the chief baker and me and you put us in prison. And one night, the chief baker and I had a dream, and each dream had its own meaning. And there was a young Hebrew man, Joseph, was our cellmate. He was with us in prison, and he was a slave. And we told him our dreams. And he told us what each of our dreams meant, and everything happened just as he had predicted. Somehow I forgot. I was restored to my position as cupbearer, and the chief baker, my friend, was executed and impaled on a pole. Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the prison. First observation of putting your pride to the side, which by the, by the way, my wife wanted it on the outline, put your pride to the side. I'm like, I'm not saying that 15 times. All right. So put your pride to the side. The first observation, Joseph is weathered and well-prepared. I'm explaining what it means. Joseph is weathered and well-prepared. We have talked in great detail about the trouble 
and the trials and the temptation and the adversity and the circumstances of his life. But all of those, the trials, the temptations, the adversity, the hard things in his life has prepared him for this moment. He's about to go toe to toe, face to face with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And he's not going to go with arrogance and he's not going to go with an ego and he's not going to go with his chest puffed out. He's going to go in absolute humility and absolute grace. Why? Because he's been through some storms. He's been through some storms in his life. He's weathered and they've actually developed his character. It does something to your character when you face these hardships. It strengthens you. It causes you to cling to the Lord. It humbles you. It's why we need adversity. It's why we need trials. There's no shortcut. There's no shortcut to deep godly character. It comes through God sometimes putting you through a fire and bringing you out on the other side. James Garfield was president of the United States. I don't know when he was president. I didn't, I have no idea. <laughs> Sometime he was president. All right. But before he was the president of the United States, he was the president of a college, the small college in Ohio. And one day the father of one of these students comes to him as the president of the college. And he says, Hey, can we shorten this course of study so that my son can get through it faster? The parent, dad, goes to the college president and asks for this course to be shorter so his son can go through faster. Certainly, President Garfield replied, but it all depends on what you want to make of your boy. He said, when God wants to make an oak tree, he takes 100 years, and when God wants to make a squash, he takes two months. What do you want your boy to be? I bet we would agree that in our society today, there's a lot of squash being produced and not a whole lot of oak trees. Joseph is not a squash. God ain't making a squash out of Joseph. He's making him an oak. In fact, he's an oak tree that we're reading about thousands of years later because of his character. And it really should be this huge encouragement for you today that God is using the adversity, the storms, the trials, the temptations, the hard parts in your life to mold you, refine you. And it's hard when you're going through it, but you're going to come out on the other side and you're going to be less focused on yourself and your will for your life and more focused on him and his will for your life. It's worth it. It's a promise of God. So I hope it's an encouragement to you. And Joseph has faced his fair share. His life has been hard but it's actually helped him put his pride to the side. He's weathered and he's well-prepared for this moment. Verse 14, Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once and he was quickly brought from the prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night and no one here, none of my magicians, none of my dream guys, none of them can tell me what it means. But I hear that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. Again, I want you to feel what Joseph's feeling. If you're a man in the room, what does this feel like? Pharaoh has called you. Nobody else can do it. You can do it. If I'm Joseph, I'm sticking my head out, my chest out, not my head out. I'm sticking my chest out. You know what? I am better than these guys. I might even be thinking, how much am I going to charge Pharaoh for this little bit of information? He can't get it anywhere else. I'm the guy that can give it to him. Let's watch Joseph's response. It is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Observation number two, Joseph putting his pride to the side. He knows how to handle winning. 
He knows how to handle winning. He knows how to handle success. Success is actually a better word here, but all of these start with W, all right? So I just did both. Winning, he knows how to handle some success in his life. And if you and if I are gonna grow, if our character is gonna grow, we're gonna have to learn how to handle some success in life. We're gonna have to learn how to handle when someone compliments us. Joseph has handled success well his whole life. He was a humble leader in charge of Potiphar's house. He was a humble leader in charge of the jail, but now he's tasting success like he's never tasted before. This would be like the president of the United States calling you and calling a press conference and bringing you to the White House and saying, no one in the world can solve this problem that this country desperately needs, but you. That's what Joseph's feeling. Joseph has this gift but his character is big enough to handle the gift. I'm going to say that again. This is kind of a, the meat today. This microphone keeps getting stuck on my beard. I'm sorry. Joseph has a gift, but his character is big enough to handle the gift. Now we see the opposite of this all the time, don't we? Don't with celebrities and with these gifted and talented people who make it and achieve all the worldly success but their character isn't big enough, strong enough to handle the success. Don't worry, I've got some examples and you could add to this list. You ready? Athletes, Antonio Brown, Johnny Manziel, Ron Artest, otherwise known as Metal World Peace. Uh, I lost my place. Ryan Leaf, Dennis Rodman, Aaron Hernandez, OJ Simpson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We see it with celebrities, Bill Cosby, Michael Jackson, Miley Cyrus, Matt Lauer. Their character wasn't strong enough to handle their success. I'm not judging them. I'm just calling a fact a fact. They get all the success, all this money, all this fame, but their character can't handle it, and their success ends up ruining them. A great one, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Remember her? Academy Award-winning actress. She was in Titanic. She was in Entrapment, Ocean's 12, Zorro movies. Very talented, very gifted, very successful, but her character couldn't handle her success. And I'll quote her. You ready? I'm sick of being humble, she says. I really am. So sorry I'm rich. So sorry I'm married to a movie star. So sorry I'm not so bad looking. A million dollars isn't a lot of money for people like us. Some people collect art or lots of money. We collect houses because if we have to look at something, we prefer the view. Arrogance. Ready for this? Her biggest frustration in life. When I have an outfit, and I think it's going to look great with a certain pair of shoes, I remember the shoes are in some other house. I can't put them on. That's why I have to buy duplicates, pairs of shoes. That's a big problem, isn't it? Don't we all wish it was just celebrities and famous athletes to have to deal with pride? Theirs is on a grander scale and theirs is on the news. We have to deal with it too. We at times have to deal with success. And so I'm gonna give you a couple of examples. How would you handle a promotion at work? How would you handle a raise at work? How would you handle being the CEO or whatever job you're in? You're the CEO tomorrow. You walk in and you go to the corner office with a window or your teacher of the year, whatever profession you're in, you're at the top. How would your character handle that? How do you handle the praise of people? People praising you for what you've done. When people compliment you, does the approval or praise of others affect your heart in some weird way where you actually start to believe the hype about yourself a little bit? You know what? They're right. Preachers have to deal with this. Some preachers get up and they speak to thousands upon thousands every Sunday. I only speak to a couple of hundred, but I can tell you this. If I'm not really, really careful, 
This thing can do something weird to me where I care a lot more about what you think than what I'm preaching. It's dangerous. There's a pastor who had preached for 30 years, been married to his wife for 30 years. So 30 years worth of sermons. And he stumbles into his wife's closet one day for some reason, and there's a shoebox in there with six eggs and $10,000 cash. He's like, what the? So he calls his wife and he's like, honey, I need to ask you about this. What, what is this box of six eggs and $10,000 cash? And she said, well, honey, over 30 years, every time you have a poor sermon, I put an egg in here. He's like, wow, 30 years, only six bad sermons? He said, well, what's all the $10,000 cash for? And she said, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them. <laughs> sold them. <laughs> I think parents deal with this. I think parents deal with this pride. What happens to your pride as a parent when your kid experiences success? Your kid makes straight A's. Does that do science? Your DNA. Your kid's named valedictorian or your child's gifted and talented or your ch- child makes the team that they try out for or your girl wins a beauty pageant or your boy gets the game ball. Does it do something weird to you? If your character isn't strong, all of a sudden the success, whether it's yours or your child's, begin to actually have something unhealthy. And you say, oh, I don't struggle with that. What about when your kid doesn't win? What about when the other kid gets the game ball or the other girl wins the pageant and your kid's first runner up? What? My baby? Something to your pride. Social media has only ramped this thing up. It's made pride and boasting more acceptable. It's numbed us in some ways to where we don't even recognize it as arrogance or pride anymore. This past week was National Signing Day for college football. It's also a time where coaches start to offer kids their sophomores and juniors in high school. And I can't count on two hands how many times I saw on Twitter this week where some kid, high schooler post, humbled to announce that I've been offered by the University of Georgia. You're not humbled to announce it. Why is humbled in there? You're putting it on Twitter. You're trying to tell as many people as possible that you got that offer. Don't put humbled in there, but proud to announce or don't put anything at all. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's posting it. It's just normal. Here's a, here's a good example. 15 years ago, let's say I won coach of the year. Okay. Let's say I was coaching. Let's say I won coach of the year 15 years ago and there was a newspaper article and I took that newspaper article and I made a thousand copies and I mailed it to a thousand people. People would think I was the most psychopath egomaniac in the world, right? Today, if I was named coach of the year and there was a Facebook post about it or it was on Twitter or Instagram and I shared it or retweeted it, nobody thinks it's arrogant. It's the same heart. I want a thousand people to know I had some success. But social media has numbed us. We're like, that's just normal. Printing newspaper articles and mailing it to a thousand people is really what it would have looked like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. There are parents who post on social media all kind of stuff. I saw one this morning. A friend of mine on Facebook that I haven't talked to in 20 years posted a picture, all right? And he, he wanted to brag. He wanted to let you know how great of a parent was. So at first he said, we limit our kids to one hour of electronics a day. But, and he's got a picture of his son standing here like this at the TV screen, pointing to the TV screen, the, some level the kid made it to on Fortnite. Put it on social media. Is that not Unbelievable. Fortnite, unbelievable. He didn't even accomplish anything. It's a video game. There are parents who post on social media when their kids use the bathroom. You seen this? Kid used the bathroom for the first time. They're going to put it on social media. All your, did, all your kid did was go to the bathroom. My kid wets the bed every night. I don't brag about it on Facebook. He's four years old, wets the bed every single night. 
Now, this pride, this pride is more, it's more ingrained and it's more natural to us than I think we realize. You know how I caught myself this week? I think I can do everybody else's job better than they can do it. Everybody, even stuff I'm not trained in. Yesterday, Courtney and I went to Publix and the guy was trying to open the propane thing. I was trying to get a propane heater and he couldn't get the cage open and it was taking forever and it was freezing. And I was just looking at Courtney like, I'd have, I'd have done this 10 times already. What's this guy doing, right? I'm better than the guy at Publix. At restaurants, if I was in charge, people wouldn't have to wait so long. When I watch a game, I always think I'd be a better quarterback, a better referee and a better coach than the ones I'm watching. I'm the best driver on the roads. Everyone else is an idiot that can't drive. I'd make the DMV a more pleasant and efficient experience. I know more than my kids' teachers. I could be a better weatherman. It goes on and on and on, and you do it too. We think we're pretty special, don't we? And if we were in charge, things would be better. You ever look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, less refined, or less successful than you? Do you ever... Think of yourself as more spiritual than others. Do you have a judgmental spirit? Are you critical of others? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way, or the best way? Do you have a touchy, sensitive spirit? Are you easily offended? Do you become defensive when you are criticized? Do you talk about yourself too much? Do you get hurt if your accomplishments or acts of service aren't recognized? Do you have a hard time being told what to do, etc., etc., etc.? All of them rooted in pride. And you say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if I have a little bit of pride about my success or a little bit of pride about my kids' success? Here's the big deal. God hates it. He hates it. It makes him your opponent rather than his friend. That's the big deal. This pride is going to lead you into conflict, into disgrace, into destruction, and God's going to become your opponent. Even if it's subtle, even if everybody else is doing it and posting about it, even if we don't think it's that big of a deal. Joseph doesn't give in to his pride. His character can handle it. He puts his pride to the side. He doesn't seem to be the type that would make this whole experience an Instagram story. I'm getting shaved, getting cleaned up, going to see Pharaoh. Hey, you guys pray for me. I'm on the way. He's not doing that. He's putting his pride, he's putting his selfishness to the side. What happens next? Pharaoh's going to tell Joseph about the dreams. I'm not going to read them again. We know them. Skinny cows are eating fat cows and skinny stalks are eating plump stalks of grain. Ready? We're going to pick up in verse 25. Joseph responds. Both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin, scrawny cows that came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. It's going to be seven years of great, seven years of famine. That's what your dreams mean. This is will happen just as I've described it for God has revealed it to Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt. But afterward, there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in all of Egypt and famine will destroy the land. This famine will be so severe that even the memory of the good years will be erased. You've had two similar dreams, Pharaoh, which means this. This is decreed by God, and he will soon make them, make them happen. So how does he handle winning? How does he handle success? How does he handle all this? He gives God the credit four times. Four times, he says, it's not me, it's God. He says, I don't have the power, but God does. God is telling Pharaoh. God has revealed to Pharaoh. These events have been decreed by God. He's not taking the credit. He's not 
take, he's not playing the hero. He's putting his pride to the side. Third observation, Joseph is a witness. He's not a hero. He's simply a witness to God. He points people to God instead of to himself. He doesn't take this gift that he has and start saying things like, yeah, I've worked really hard for this. I've earned this. I'm entitled to this. I deserve this. He says none of that. He simply points Pharaoh to God. He gives God the credit. And I don't know about your pride, but my pride doesn't want to give someone else the credit. My pride wants to say, I earned this. I worked for this. I deserve this. And so people might praise us for something that we've done or something that we've accomplished and the credit and the glory that they give us stops with us and it never goes to God. I want, I want you to feel how dangerous that is to an unbeliever. Pharaoh's an unbeliever. So Joseph has a chance to witness to Pharaoh right here. What he could have said is, you're right. I do have this gift of interpret, interpreting dreams and never mentioning God. And that's not what he does. God, 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 God. He's giving all the credit to God. And that's what we should do. An unbeliever comes to us, gives us some sort of credit. Hey, I don't understand how you never get drunk at parties. Well, yeah, I got a lot of self-control. Bull crap. You don't have a lot of self-control. God's giving you some grace and you point it to God. It's exactly what Joseph does. He hears Pharaoh's compliment and he says, I can't do it, but God can He's telling Pharaoh, you have all these dumb magicians and wise men and dream readers that try to study books and the stars. And I'm telling you, there's someone beyond the stars that created the stars and he'll tell you all of it. There's somebody greater, Pharaoh. He's pointing him to God. He's pointing him to the giver of the gift. He's not taking credit for his gift. He lets Pharaoh know real quick, I'm simply a witness. Verse 33. Therefore, since God has revealed all this, here's what Pharaoh should do. You should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crops during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away and guard it there so food will be in the cities. That, That way there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine. So he just solves the problem for him. He says, you need to go hire somebody. Observation number four, Joseph is a window, not a mirror. Joseph is a window, not a mirror. My wife, uh, Courtney, is a school counselor at White Knoll High School. She had a high school student come to her a couple years ago. Her name was Kanaya. Kanaya had on a necklace. We've talked about sports, guys, so bear with me. We're going to talk about jewelry for a second. All right, so she had a necklace. You've seen the gold necklace with the name, you know, like written in cursive in the middle. A lot of girls wear Kanaya. Well, it was backwards. My wife's like, sweetie, your, your necklace is on backwards. She said, oh, no, ma'am, it's not on backwards. It's that way so that when I take a selfie of myself, it shows up the right way. <laughs> so she wears it backwards in real life so that it looks the right way in virtual life. Total focus on self. Joseph has every earthly right to focus on himself. He's got every right to look at himself in the mirror, focus on himself. His life has been hard. It's been over a decade as a slave. He's falsely in prison. He's been forgotten. It's finally his day in court. It's finally his time to to tell his side of the story and tell Pharaoh what Potiphar's wife did to him. It's finally his chance to use his voice to get even. He could have even said in verse 33, rather than said, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man. He could have said, he's standing right here, Pharaoh. I can fix all this for you. He does none of that. He lets success come to him. 
puts his pride to the side again, and he chooses to be a window so that through him, Pharaoh might see God. And you know what? It works. Verse 37. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone like this man? So obviously filled with the spirit of God. This is the most powerful man in the world who's got a God-like status giving credit to the God. It's big. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. Pharaoh's giving God the credit. Joseph has been a witness and a window, and Pharaoh is recognizing it. Verse 40, you will be in charge of my court, and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. So over and over again, Joseph puts his pride to the side. God's word this morning, as we close, has been very clear to us that God hates our pride. He hates it. He despises it. There's one verse that says it's an abomination to him. I don't really know what that means. Sounds bad. He hates it. What might God do if we humbled ourselves? One of my favorite stories in the Bible is prodigal son. You've heard it. I won't read it. We'll just paraphrase it. Got two brothers, right? And uh, one of them, basically the younger one, goes to his dad and he says, I wish you were dead. Pretty much he says, I wish you were dead. I want all your money now. I don't want to wait all this time for you to die when you're an old man. I want you to give me my inheritance right now. And so the father does. And the guy goes off and he squanders it on wild living. Prostitutes, partying. He squanders all the money. Loses all the money. The Bible says, key phrase, he says, when the young son finally came to his senses. That's what I'm wondering if some of us will have that moment today. We finally come to our senses about our pride and realize, you know what? I thought it was kind of subtle and hidden and it's not so subtle and hidden. God hates my pride. And so I finally come to my senses today like this son in the story does. He finally comes to his senses and he says, I'm going back to the father. I'm going back. And as he starts to head back, you know the end of the story. The father sees him and he runs towards him. That's what your father does for you. When you come to your senses, when you humble yourself before him, that's the response that he has for you. He comes for you. He's not waiting with a stick to spank you. He's coming to embrace you. So I wonder if some of us need to do that today because the second part of the verse that we've been referencing all day, God is opposed to the proud. What's the second part of the verse? He gives grace to the humble. Don't know about you, but on Sunday morning, I need some grace. I need to humble myself. I don't want God to have to humble me. I want to humble myself before him and receive the grace that he gives. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I do. As Luke 15 says, I want to come to my senses. I want to just finally call it what, it what it is. And I've got some things inside my heart where I, I care about what people think about me. I've got some things in my heart where I think I'm better than people. I've got some things in my heart where I think I'm more important or more special than I really am. Just call it what it is. Just own it. Tell you the truth about me because you already know it anyway. God, I want to feel that as we, as we worship. I want to feel the fact that you oppose my pride, that it's an abomination to you, that you despise it, you hate it. It's going to lead to my destruction, my disgrace. It's going to lead to conflict in my life. I want to put it to the side. And so, Lord, this morning, we'll claim your promise that says you oppose us when we're proud, but you give grace to us when we humble ourselves. That's what we want to do. So maybe there's many folks here who need to take some bread and juice this morning remind themselves of how you humbled yourself for us. 
There's other folks that just need to, in their seat, they need to confess some pride to you. Whatever that looks like, Lord, we pray your spirit would meet us here as we sing, as we worship. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. This audio is provided as a free ministry of Radius Church. If you would like to reproduce this audio, please feel free to do so. We ask that you do not charge for any reproductions that you make. If you would like to know more about Radius, please visit us online at radiuschurch.org or download our app from your app store.